Please turn with me in your Bible. Psalm 119, verse 33. Psalm 119, and we'll pick up in verse 33 today. There the word of Christ says this. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to revive us, Lord, through your righteousness. Lord, knowing that we are living in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Lord, a spiritual wasteland, Lord, is the land that we inhabit. And yet, Lord, we find in your word, Lord, a place to refresh us, Lord, to revive us. Lord, to teach us and to show us the good and proper way. And so, Father, we pray that today your spirit would be with us and that, Lord, you would quicken our spirits within us. Lord, that we might uh, have vitality. Lord, that you would lift up our countenance. Lord, that we would uh, be able to serve you with fear and trembling all the days of our life. So, Lord, help us today as we teach your word. Lord, give to us the true and proper understanding. Lord, give to us true faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, these psalms have many great benefits for the Christian life. Uh, The psalms, what is so great about them is that we can teach from the psalms, uh, we can sing from the psalms, and we can pray from the psalms. All of them, all the aspects of the Christian life, of our worship, can be found there in the book of Psalms. And certainly this is true of Psalm 119. Right? Psalm 119 can be sung to the Lord, we can preach it, or it can be prayed to God. And here specifically, in this section that we are in today, each of these verses contains a request to God, a plead to God for His grace. The prophet recognizing his utter dependence upon God for every good and perfect gift. Right? If he is going to make any progress in the Christian life, if he's going to pro- make any advancement in regards to his salvation, then God must graciously grant it to him. He says, teach me, give me understanding, make me walk, incline my heart, turn away my eyes, establish your word, turn away my reproach, revive me. In all of these, the prophet is asking God to do for him what he cannot do for himself. This is as Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him He bears much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do absolutely nothing. We need God. We depend upon Him. We pray to Him. God does not pray to us because God does not need us, and God does not depend upon us for us to do for Him something that He cannot do for Himself. This is what we must understand. The very nature of prayer is a recognition that we are lacking of anything good and that God is the only source of good and we must go to Him and plead with Him to give us what we graciously need. And this is what the prophet is doing here. He wants to live a godly life. He wants to be faithful to the Lord. He wants to walk in the pathway of God's commandments. But he knows that he doesn't have the ability to do this on his own. He does not have in himself the strength to accomplish this, so he goes to the only source of strength, the only one who can bring this about. He goes to the throne of grace to find mercy in his time of need. Isn't this what Jesus taught us in Matthew 7, 9? Or Matthew 7, 7? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. This is what the prophet is doing here. We must learn from his example. If we are going to live a faithful Christian life, it will only be by the grace of God. We must go to the fount of all grace and plead with him to give us what we need. And this is what he is doing here. 
So let's pick up today in verse 33. Verse 33 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Here, he wants the Lord to teach him. He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. He wants the word of Christ to dwell in him richly. As it says in Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell within you, richly dwell within you. This is what we need. We need the word of Christ to richly dwell within us. Already he is a believer. Already he knows the word of Christ, but he wants to know it more and more. He wants more understanding. He wants more of the word of God within him. He wants God to continue opening his eyes so that he might see wonderful things from his law and grow in understanding and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says so in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are called as Christians to grow in the grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And where are we going to grow? How are we going to grow? Only by the word of God. Only when God teaches us from his word. So this is what he desires. Now we remember that this is the prophet David who is saying this. One who is a holy prophet of God. One who is a king who is a type of Christ, one who also is a very accomplished man. There are few people in the history of the world who were as accomplished as the prophet David, both as a poet, as a musician, as a warrior, a man of war, as a diplomat, as a ruler. He excelled in all of these areas and was very gifted in many, many ways. There are few people in human history who possess the skills and the abilities and the giftings of the prophet David. But if a person excels in even one of these areas, we find it to be a great accomplishment. But he excelled in many various diverse ways. And this is very rare for this to be found in one person. However, even though he has all of these abilities, he still is a humble man. He still recognizes that he needs God to teach him, even as a prophet. And none of us are prophets. He was a prophet. We are not prophets. Yet he still recognized he needed God to teach him. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If we look there at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, Now these things, brethren... I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? Or what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here the apostle is addressing arrogance, one brother against another. But Arrogance begins with us against God, right? That's where it begins and begins, and then it spills over one against our brother. We cannot be arrogant toward one another, nor can we be arrogant toward the Lord by thinking we are something when in fact we are nothing. Failing to recognize that whatever we have, whatever progress we've made, whatever giftings that we have, all of it comes from God. So what do I have to boast over and against my brother when everything I have has been given to me as a gift from God? This is what the prophet recognizes in Psalm 119. This is why he wants God to teach him the way of his statutes. He needs God to do this for him. Also notice that it is his statutes that he wants to know from God. Statutes are commandments, laws, rules, right? The word of God is a commandment from the Lord, from the king of heaven, the law of God coming down from the throne of heaven. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God is a king. He sits on his throne and from his throne, he issues statutes or commandments or laws or rules that he gives to people, that he gives to mankind. So his word is not a suggestion. 
His word is not an opinion. It is not something that we can take or leave. But rather, it is a binding rule that we are bound to obey before God. Now, many times, false interpreters of the Bible, those who want to live a free, loosey-goosey life, they want to make the Old Testament about laws and commandments, and then the New Testament is about promises and a relationship and the good news and the grace of God. And since we live in the New Testament time, then our Christian experience is about grace. It's about mercy. It's about a relationship with God. It's about the promises of God, but it doesn't have anything to do with laws and commandments and statutes. That was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was about rules and law-keeping, but in the New Testament, it's about promises, and it's about a relationship with God. But this is a false dichotomy that is not found in the Bible. Even the gospel itself is a statute. It is a commandment that comes down from heaven to men, and men are commanded by God to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4. It says such. First Peter 4, verse 17. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So there, the gospel of God and obedience... These are not mutually exclusive. These are not contradictory concepts in the Bible, but rather here they go hand in hand. The gospel is a statute, a law, that is to be obeyed that comes from God. And if people do not obey the gospel, then there's judgment that will come upon them. Also in Acts chapter 17, this is what the Apostle Paul told the men of Athens. In chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. It says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There... God is now declaring to men, to all people everywhere, that they should do what? They should repent of their sins. Not because it's just going to make them a better person, but they should repent because God, the King of heaven, commands them. He demands, He expects them to repent. So this false dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the law and the gospel, between a relationship with God and obedience to God, the reason men create these kinds of false distinctions and read the Bible through them is because they hate authority. Men hate authority. The flesh hates authority. The flesh is ruled by pride. And in our pride... We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want to do what we want to do. We want to be in authority. We don't want to submit to any authority, whether that be legitimate earthly authority or whether that be the authority that comes down out of heaven. You see this with children against the authority of their parents. You see this with wives against the authority of their husbands. You see this with men against their superiors in the workplace or in society, even in the church. You see this with the people against their pastors that they don't want to submit. Whether in the world or whether in the Christian world, men lack humility. The flesh is ruled by pride, and ultimately this goes back to God. People don't want God telling them what to do. They don't want God exercising authority over them. But that's not the attitude of the prophet. The prophet's attitude is he wants God to teach him. He wants to submit to God. He wants to know the will of God. He already has the right attitude. He just needs God to tell him what to do. And that's why he's going to him asking him, teach me the way of your statutes. 
He's not just saying, God, teach me your promises so that I can have comfort. He's saying, teach me your laws. Teach me your rules so that I can obey you, so that I can do your will. He is coming as a humble, faithful slave who comes every morning to his master and says, Master, what do you expect of me today? Master, what do you want me to do for you today? I want to know your will because I want to do what is pleasing to you. That's the attitude we should have towards God. Come to his word as a humble slave saying, Lord, show me your will because I want to please you in all things. I want my life to be ruled by you. I want to subjugate myself to you. That is what he says. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Why does he want God to teach him? Teaching for the sake of observance, obedience. He wants to obey God. That's the goal of his prayer. The goal is obedience. The means to obedience is, God, you teach me. I want to obey you, but I can't obey you unless I know your will. And I can't know your will unless you teach me. So give me what I need. Teach me so that I can obey you. Also notice, and I shall observe it to the end. To the end. Now the question is, to the end of what? To the end of the day? Or to the end of his life? To the very end of his life. He wants to know the will of God, the word of God. He wants the commandment of God so that he can obey it not just for a day or two, but till the very end of his life. His obedience is not short, temporary obedience, but it is lifelong. It is lifelong to the very end. Now, this is contrary to most people. There are many people who would make bold resolutions. They will burn hot with zeal for a week or two, maybe a month, perhaps even a year but quickly their zeal burns out and they go back to their old ways. These are like uh, New Year resolution Christians. They make their New Year's resolution, it lasts for a month or two, and then what happens? They go right back and, and they forget it and they're back to their old ways, to their old eating habits, to doing whatever it is that they resolved that they were going to overcome. Well, there are others who will accommodate their practices to those who are around them. But they're not doing it because of conviction. They're just doing it to fit in with other people. So if the people are serious-minded, then they'll be serious-minded. If they're in fellowship with those who are taking the Bible seriously, then they will take the Bible seriously. But whenever they leave them, whenever they go out from them, then they will go back to their previous ways. They lose, they abandon their convictions. Either way, the faithfulness is short it is temporary, it is momentary, there's no endurance, there's no perseverance in the things of God. These people are like a person who runs a marathon, they take off, they go 100 yards, 100 miles an hour, and then they get tired and they quit. But that doesn't mean that you're going to get an award, does it? Do you get the satisfaction of, of running the marathon if you only make it 100 yards into the marathon? No, of course not. And this is how it is in the Christian life. You have to run according to the rules. And the rule is you have to run to the end. You have to run till the very end. And that's what the prophet is saying here. If you will teach me, then I will observe them all the way to the end of my life. I'm going to incorporate my new understanding of your word into my faith, into my practices, not for a short period of time, but for the rest of my life. Because if it's true today, then what is it tomorrow? It's true tomorrow. And what about the next day? And what about 10 years from now? What about 50 years from now? Right? If it's true today, and if we are expected to obey it today, then aren't we expected to obey it for the rest of our life? Because God's word does not change. God's word is eternal. So if it is good for me today, then it's good for me for the rest of my life. And I must observe it until the very end. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 says, 
But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Right? We are the house of God. We are the temple of God. If we hold our conviction, our confidence, until when? Until the end. Right? We are making these bold assertions today, and that's good and fine and great, but those bold assertions today are only good if we're still making them at the end of our life. If we turn away, if we fall away, if we give up, then what do we prove ourselves to be? That we're unbelievers and that we do not belong to Christ. Also, verse 12 to 14, chapter 3 of Hebrews, verses 12 to 14, says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We are partakers of Christ if we hold fast until the very end. We must hold fast until the end, and it is the perseverance, the endurance that proves that we truly have become partakers of Christ. True redemption will manifest itself in faithfulness to the Lord until the very end. But if we do not hold fast until the end, then we prove that we never partook of Christ, that we are superficial, phony, fake Christians. He doesn't want to be a phony. He doesn't want to be a fake. He wants to be a sincere, legitimate. He wants to prove that his faith is genuine, and this he will prove by his endurance until the very end. I will observe it until the end. Verse 34, Psalm 119, 34. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Here, the sentiment is the same. Teach me or give me understanding of your word so that I might observe it. Understanding for the sake of observance. Here again, he recognizes that without the illuminating power of God, he cannot properly understand the word of Christ. He cannot understand it for his benefit, for his salvation. Right? He doesn't want just some mere conceptual knowledge about the word of God, but he wants the understanding that leads to obedience, that leads to observing the word of God. Faith without works is dead. It is useless. Understanding without observance is useless. It is of no benefit to the person. That's what he wants. Give me understanding so that I can observe, so that I can keep and follow your commandments. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, show us that without God giving us understanding, we cannot understand the word of God. So we have to have this humble attitude every time we approach the Bible. We have to ask God, to teach us, to give us understanding of his word because we do not have the ability through our flesh and through our own strength to understand the word of God for our benefit, for our salvation, right, in the proper way. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he would instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There the Spirit must teach us. He must teach us the mind of God, and only he can do so. That's why the prophet is here praying for God to give him understanding. And here the evidence that he understands the word of God 
is he says, I will observe it with all my heart. All my heart. So not only does he want to observe the law of God until the end of his life, he also wants to observe it the right way. Not as a hypocrite who does it as a show, but with the right attitude, with the heart, with a true, sincere heart from the inner man. The inside to the outside, the inner man to the outer man. This is the obedience that we should desire. This is the obedience that God desires for us to have. Obedience the right way, all the way, right all the time. Immediate obedience, right right away, that we would obey God immediately. Whenever we come to the Word of God and we see something in the Word of God, we should not go and say, let me think about it for a couple of years. Let me ponder this for a couple of months. If there's something lacking in our obedience, or if there's some sin that comes to our knowledge from reading the Bible, when should we repent of that sin? When should we obey God? Immediately, right? Not a week or two. Not, let me pray about it for a couple of months. No, it's right there. It says, do not commit adultery, and you're committing it, so quit doing it. Right now, immediately, you should stop doing the sin that you are committing. And also, the right way, with all of our heart. That's the way that we should obey God. Not half-heartedly, not as a double-minded man, not a little bit here and a little bit there, but with all of the heart. And then all the way, all the way, all the way to win, to the end of our life. That's the obedience that we should have before God. And here, if obedience is with all the heart then that means it's going to be the whole man, right? Because isn't it the heart that controls the man? As the heart is, so will the man be. And again, not just a tiny portion of the heart, not just a little sliver of the heart given to God, but all of it, all of my heart given to God. Not saying, I want to keep back a part of it for my flesh so that I can enjoy sin and savor it here and there. No, all of it needs to be given to God. This is what he wants. Obedience to be full and complete with all the heart. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart controls the life. From the heart flow the springs of life. So if from the heart we are being obedient to God, if we're keeping his word with all of our heart, then what's going to be true of the life of that man? His life is going to be rightly ordered in the will of God. And this is what we should desire to do. An example of this, 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23. Verses 24 and 25. Second Kings 23, 24 says, Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book of Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. He turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. All the law with all of his heart. This is the way that he did. He turned. Whenever he became aware that there were things in his kingdom and in his own life that were lacking, that were not conforming to the law of God, he immediately tore his clothes. He immediately repented of that, and then he set about with all of his might reforming the land and saying, we're not going to tolerate this in my kingdom. It's not going to be this way. He did whatever he could do. And he led the people, even though many of them were superficial, he led them to do what was right in the sight of God. And he was doing it for the right reasons. That's the way that we should be. That same attitude of Josiah is the attitude of the prophet in Psalm 119. Also, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Verse 17, 
Acts chapter 19 and verse 17. It says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Isn't this what they're doing here? They're wanting to serve God with all the heart. And whenever they are hearing the gospel and how it condemns their sorcery, their dark arts, right, this type of witchcraft, what do they do? They get rid of it. They don't go home and think about it for a little bit. They immediately go and they begin to burn them. They don't even say, well, we're not going to use them anymore, but we can sell them and we'll take the money and we'll use it for missions or we'll give it to the poor. They don't do that. They get rid of whatever is there that is contrary to God and to God's will. They want rid of it. They want it out of their life. It is detestable to them, so detestable that they're willing to burn it, even though they're very costly books. And here, it's not saying that in a a way condemning them. This is being put forward as an example of their righteousness, as an example of their faithfulness before God. This is the way that we should be. Psalm 119, verse 35 says, Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Here he says, Make me walk in the path of your commandments. He wants to walk in the right way. He knows that he needs to walk in the right way, but he doesn't have the ability to walk in the right way on his own. He needs God to give him the ability He needs God to give him the strength necessary to walk in the right way. He is depending on God for everything. He wants God to make me, make me, make this true of me. God, by your will, overpower my will, my will that comes from my flesh. I don't want it to control me. I don't want the will of the flesh to dominate me, but I want your will to dominate me. So make me walk in the pathway of your commandments. Now, there are many people who believe that God will not force a man to do anything contrary to his free will. That God will invite men, he'll encourage men, God will even beg men to come to him. He will sweetly, tenderly call to men, but God will not make men do anything contrary to their so-called free will. And for many people, the thought that God would make a man do something is abhorrent to them. It is detestable to them. It's a God that they would never serve and that they could never worship. But is this the attitude of the prophet? No. He isn't concerned about his so-called free will. He's asking God to overcome his will. Take my will away and give me your will. That is what he is asking God. He's begging God to make me do something. Make me walk in the pathway of your commandments. Change my will so that my will is in conformity to your will. And he would know in no way demean God if God forced him to walk in the pathway of his commandments. That's what he's asking God to do. He would praise God and thank God for God making him do the will of God. If the will of the flesh rises up in opposition to the will of God, then he wants God to overcome his flesh. He wants God to beat down his flesh. Overcome my will that comes from my flesh and make me walk according to your will. And if I try to depart from your will, then bring me back to it. Bring me back to the pathway. Do not let me depart. Make me, force me, compel me to walk in the proper way. Why? Because I delight in it. He says, for I delight in it. He knows that's the good pathway. That's the good way. He doesn't want to go into sin. That's the horrible way. He wants to be in the good pathway. The pathway of God's commandments is the good pathway pleasant pathway. That is the pathway of blessing. That's what it said in Psalm 119 verse 1. Isn't it what we saw at the very beginning of the psalm? Psalm 119 and verse 1, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. 
How blessed are those who observe his testimony, who seek him with all their heart. That's the pathway of blessing. This is the light, easy yoke of Christ. Now, the unbeliever and the superficial Christian, they find obedience to God to be a hard, heavy, miserable burden to bear. This because they're dominated by their flesh. For God to make them do something, that would be misery to them. But is obedience to God, is that a heavy burden to bear? No, of course not. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 verses 28 to 30. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here, Jesus describes two kinds of loads, two different kinds of burdens. One burden is heavy. It leads to weariness, and it brings about no rest. The other burden is light. It is easy, and it leads to rest for your soul. And what is the heavy burden? It's the burden of sin. The load of sin is the heavy, weary load to bear. Slavery to sin leads to no rest. That is the hard burden to bear. And isn't sin an evil master? Isn't the devil an evil, cruel master? that heaps burdens upon his people, that sink them down into the depths of hell? But what about Christ? What kind of a master is Christ? He says he's gentle and lowly of spirit. He is a humble, gracious master. He doesn't heap up heavy burdens upon his people. He puts light, easy burdens on them that bring about rest and delight for the soul. And what is the burden of Christ? But obedience to Christ, it is the pathway of the commandments of God. The pathway being described in Psalm 119. That is the easy, light burden of Christ. The delightful pathway compared to the pathway of sin. Psalm 119 verse 36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain." Here, you see the difference in his values in contrast to the values of the world. Isn't it true that for many, many people, many men are consumed with money? It's on their mind all the time, right? They got their mind on money, and money is on their mind all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is all that they can think about. That's all that they are consumed with, money, possessions, Right, doing this, doing that, enjoying this life. Their heart is filled with greed, with covetousness. This is what they think about all the time. But the prophet does not want his life to be dominated by the pursuit and love of money, but instead by the pursuit of God's testimonies. Incline your, my heart to your testimonies. He wants his heart rightly inclined to the commandments of God so that everything is in its proper place. Then, if this is true, when he is working, when he is pursuing money in the proper way, it's going to be regulated by the commandment of God, and it's not going to lead to greed and covetousness. Right? Certainly, there's nothing contrary in the Bible to pursuing gain, to making money, to acquiring wealth, as long as we do it in the right way as long as we do it in the way that is faithful to God. It must be done honestly, honestly, through just means, like hard work, like good investments, like frugal living, like saving and doing it in those ways, but not in dishonest ways. But many men want money so bad that they will pursue it in dishonest ways, through theft, through fraud, through deception, even through murder people will do in order to get dishonest gain. But he doesn't want that to be true of him. He wants 
his heart to be inclined to God's testimonies. And if it is, then he knows he will have a guard, he will have safety in the way that he pursues the things of this world, the way that he pursues what is just or what is good in terms of pursuing wealth and money in this world. He's not going to do it in a dishonest way, but rather he's going to do it in a just way, in an honest way before God with a clean conscience, but not in dishonest ways, not in sinful ways, but only according to the will of God. This is the same as Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches that we cannot have two masters. We can't serve both of them. Matthew 6 verse 24 Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't serve them both. Well, if you pursue wealth in dishonest ways, then what is your God? Money is. Wealth is your God. But if God, if the Lord is your God, then you're going to pursue it only according to the will of God, only according to the rules that God has established in an honest way, a just way, not in dishonesty. So he's praying for God. He knows that this is a temptation that is common to man. Isn't this true? Isn't this true for all generations? That this is a common temptation. He wants God to guard his heart, incline his heart to God's testimonies so that he will not love money in an unjust and in a sinful way. Psalm 119, verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Here, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity, looking at vain things. The world is filled with many vain things. And these vain things are appealing to the eyes of men, things that grab our attention right, through the eyes, but are truly filled with vanity. He doesn't want his eyes to be preoccupied and consumed with the vain things of this world. So he wants God to turn his eyes away from looking at vanity, at vain things. 1 John two fifteen to 17. This was what also, as we're turning there, 1 John two fifteen, that Job had made a covenant with his eyes so that he would not gaze at a virgin, so that he would not look with lust at a woman. He didn't want his eyes to be used to look at vain things, right? To look at vain things, those things that are evil and sinful. 1 John chapter 2, 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. That is in the world, he says. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. The eyes are often the member of the body that first causes us sin and temptation and sin. We see something, we see something, and then we desire it, we want it, we covet it, and then we go after it in a sinful way. Isn't this true in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6? The very first sin included what member of the body? It included the eyes, right? That they looked, it says, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. So this is a common problem that we will see things with our eyes that are delightful to the flesh, right? To the eyes as ruled by the flesh and then we will want those things. Even though in Genesis 3, though the fruit of the tree was forbidden, it was appealing to the eyes. And this will be the case when the eyes are not regulated by faith when they're not being regulated and ruled by the word of God, then the eyes will be infatuated with vain things that will result in sins against God. Also, we know, wasn't it true that the prophet David's great sin against God when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, that it was in part because he, it says, 
saw something with his eyes. He saw a beautiful woman, a forbidden woman with his eyes. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. The temptation to commit adultery came through the eyes. He saw her first, there was lust first, and then he acted upon that, and then adultery and murder is what followed. Now, we don't know if Psalm 119 was written before or after the sin with Bathsheba, but either way, the prophet David knows that he has a propensity to look at vain things. He knows that this is a common sin. This is a temptation that is common to man. And when we look at vain things, then it will result in sin against God. So he wants his eyes to be regulated by what is good, by what is righteous, by what is true. Our eyes represent in this way the members of the whole body. We should want all of the members of our body to be instruments of righteousness and not instruments of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. Romans 6, 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin will not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. There, don't present your members, the members of your body, to sin as an instrument, as a tool to be used to bring about unrighteousness. But instead, use your members, give them to God as instruments for righteousness. That's what he's saying here. I don't want my eyes to be an instrument of unrighteousness. So turn away my eyes from looking at vain things and instead revive me in your ways. I want to use my eyes to look at the word of God, to look at those things that are lawful, those things that are good and pleasing. Here he is God's servant. That's what he calls himself or God's slave. So he wants to obey God's will. He wants to obey the will of his master in from the field. Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all things which are commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only the things we ought to have done. That should be our attitude toward God. We are slaves of God. We are slaves of Christ. We should be devoted to doing his will all day long. All day long, it is our duty. It is our obligation. We are unworthy slaves. We have only done our duty before God to do the will of our master. That's what he wants. Establish your word to your servant. Give your will to your slave so that I can obey it. I want to be a faithful slave of Christ. I want to do the will of my master. That's what he is saying. And that's why he wants God to give him his word. Because only when he has the word of God established in his life, only then will he be a faithful slave of Christ. Also, he says, it is the word that produces the fear of the Lord. It produces, he says here, reverence for you. Right? The outcome of being established in the word of God will always be reverence for the Lord. God's word, rightly understood, always leads to the fear of the Lord. And if we do not have the fear of the Lord, it is impossible for us to be a Christian. You cannot be a child of God without the fear of the Lord. Now, I say that because many people today, these false, worthless churches, would say, oh, we shouldn't fear God, right? We shouldn't fear God. God's our father, right? Who fears their father? Well, that's the problem with all these undisciplined kids around there. There's no fear of their fathers. But this is the problem in the churches as well. There is no fear of God among the people because the word of God is not being rightly taught. If you're hearing the word of God is not producing the fear of the Lord, then either I'm not teaching it rightly or you're not hearing it rightly. You're not listening 
in the right way, but something is amiss. It is impossible to have true faith, true understanding, true knowledge that leads to salvation without having the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an essential aspect of the Christian life. It says in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't even begin to have wisdom, he says, without having the fear of the Lord. Yet where is the fear of God today? Where is the fear of the Lord? Where is it at in the churches? Where is it at in those who claim to be Christians? People are not being taught the fear of God. There's no fear of the Lord among those who claim to be God's children. But this is an utter contradiction. It is not consistent with the teaching of the Bible. The proper end of hearing the word of the Lord is to prepare us to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. That's why we need to hear the word of God. This is why we need to draw near together. And the apostle says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day is approaching? What is the day that he's talking about that is approaching that makes it so necessary for us to draw near together regularly? It's the day of the Lord. And what is the day of the Lord? Is it a day of light or is it a day of darkness? It's a day of calamity, of darkness. It's a day of terror. That is what the day of the Lord will be. And there are many people who say, oh, we long for the day of the Lord. But the reason they long for it unjustly and not in the right way is because they're not being taught the fear of God. They do not understand the significance of the day of judgment that is coming upon this world. And yes, even gentle Jesus, who himself, we read earlier, he's lowly, he's mild, he's gentle, he's humble. Yet even Jesus in the New Testament taught us the fear of the Lord. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And also, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Notice what it says here. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In the fear of God. There. Are the promises of God contrary to the fear of God? No. He puts them in the same verse. In verse 1. Since we have these promises, then let us cleanse ourselves of all of the defilements of the flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness is sanctification, living the Christian life, progressing in our salvation, and we can only do that with the fear of God. This is the Christian life, holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's what he wants here. He wants the commandments of God because he wants it to produce the fear of God within him, right? Reverence for God. Verse 39, 119.39, turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. What happens inevitably if we live a godly life? What will happen if we live a life of conformity to the word of God? What will happen if we live the life of Psalm 119? Isn't that what he's describing? He's describing a a kind of life that he wants to attain to, the life that he wants to live, the life of Psalm 119. We will receive reproach. We will be reviled. We will be hated. We will be rejected. People will say all manner of evil against us falsely, right? We will be ridiculed by men if we live the life of Psalm 119. This is what the prophet knows. He knows he wants to live an obedient life. He desires and delights for God's word, but he knows that this desire is going to lead to reproach, which he dreads. Who wants to suffer? Who wants to face persecution? Who wants to endure hardship? Who wants to be reproached by wicked men? Who likes having people slander them, gossip about them, tell malicious lies about them? 
right? Have secret meetings behind their back, do this and that, and try to turn their friends against them. Does anyone enjoy when people do that to them? Of course not. And that's how he is as well. He dreads it. He doesn't want this to happen, but he knows it's going to happen. He is going to faithfully serve God. He wants to live a life of peace with all men. That's his desire. This should be our desire as well, according to Romans 12, 18, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. We should, as far as it's dependent on us, live peacefully with all men. Serve the Lord and live a simple, quiet, peaceful, dignified life in all godliness. This is what the Christian should desire. But many times it will not be realized, not because we're contentious people, but because there are many critics, many enemies of God, and they will not give the people of God a moment's rest. They will reproach them. They will revile them. They will persecute them because of their faithfulness to Christ. Reproach will arise on account of the word of God and the observing of the word of God in God's children. However, when that happens, we are never to conclude that the word of God is at fault, that the word of God is evil because obedience to the word of God produces some temporary suffering and hardships in our life. Rather, he says here, your ordinances are good. God's ordinances are good. They are good all the time. There's nothing evil in the word of God. There is nothing in God's word that by keeping it should result in us suffering and being persecuted and being treated as a criminal. The reason that happens is not because of some fault or defect in the word of God. The reason it happens is because of wicked people. The defect is in them. It's not in the word of God. God is good. His word is good. His ordinances are good. And it's always good for us to obey the word of God. So we ought to believe and obey every word of God, even if doing so leads to reproach, persecution, reviling, and these types of things. Even if people say that you're in a cult or that you're legalist or that you people are a bunch of fanatics, whatever it is, they've got all sorts of nice little names that they like to spew out. But we should never, when this happens, have suspicion or doubt concerning the goodness of God's word. Whenever we are conforming our life to the word of God, it is always for our good, even if the immediate result is reproach. And anyone who seeks to convince us otherwise, that God's word or that some part of God's word is evil, they are the evil ones. They are liars. They are the ones who are evil, not the word of God. And there are many people like this today, but we can't listen to them. We cannot listen to the voice of a stranger, to the voice of an outsider. Whose voice do we have to listen to? The voice of Christ. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus says in John chapter 10, they will not listen to the voice of a stranger. They won't listen to his voice. They're going to listen to my voice. We must always listen to the voice of Christ because his voice is a good voice. The word of God contains the goodness of God no matter what men might say. And there are again many critics of the Bible, many who seek to undermine and poke holes in the Bible. They have their criticisms. They are naysayers. They will try to uh, throw mud on the word of God. But anyone who does this is themselves They are evil people. And many such wicked persons who believe themselves to be wiser than God and they believe they have more goodness than God, that they have more righteousness than God and that their way is superior to God's way, that their wisdom is superior to God's wisdom. But we know that this is not the case. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 18 to 23 tells us this. Isaiah 5, 18 says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, 
Let him make speed. Let him hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. There it is. They call evil good and they call good evil. Darkness they substitute for light and light for darkness. What is bitter they say is sweet and what is sweet they say is bitter. And what is the source of all of this confusion? Everything's backwards. They're wise in their own eyes and they're clever in their own understanding. They are wise in their own eyes. And isn't there a way that seems right to a man? But what way does that end in? It ends in destruction. It ends, it is the way of death. And this is why anyone who tries to tell us that some part of the Bible is evil, it's outdated. Oh, we can't do that today. That was for a different time. However they say it, we can't listen to them. They themselves are full of darkness. They are bitter people. Foolish in verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Here, he concludes by saying, I long for your precepts. I long for your word. My greatest desire, God, is to know you through your word. That's what I want. This is what I long for. He doesn't say, I long for many material possessions. I long to have a very long life. I long for good health. I long for fame and fortune. I long for world travel. I long for prosperity and riches. He doesn't say any of those things. I long for your precepts. That's what I want. I want your word, God, more than anything else. This should be our desire as well. God will give to us enjoyment and blessings in this life as he sees fit. But our chief purpose in life must be to know God through his word. For it is the word of God that revives the souls of men. He says, revive me through your righteousness. And where is the righteousness of God found? But in the word of Christ. Many people, they find the word of God to be dull, to be dry, to be dead. It is weary for them to have to read the word of God, to have to sit and listen to a sermon about the word of God, it would be misery for them. But is this the case at all? No, the word of God is our life. The word of God is a source of reviving for us in this world, and it is the world that is dry. It is the world that is a barren wasteland. The world is a desert place, and it is God's word that revives us in this barren wasteland that is filled with sin. As it says in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek for you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. He wants God. He knows he lives in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And where is our source of water? The Word of God, right? The Word of Christ. That is where He will be filled. He will be revived in the midst of this dry and weary land. This is how we have to be as well. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are strangers walking through a desert wilderness on our way to the heavenly promised land. And as we go along our way, we need to be revived day after day after day and the word of God has been given to us to revive the souls of men so that we do not grow weary in doing good and we ultimately reach our destination, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the place where God dwells. And this is what we should do. So we must love and long for the word of Christ above everything else. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, thanking you that you have given to us your holy word. 
Lord, we do confess. Lord, we know that we are strangers on this earth. Lord, that we do not belong here, but rather we belong in heaven with you. Lord, this world, what does it have to offer us? Lord, but sin and misery, Lord, death, chaos. Lord, this is what we see all around us. And yet, Lord, your word is a wellspring for us. Lord, that gives to us life. Lord, it revives us. Lord, we can come to your word and drink from it. And Lord, it is good for our soul. Lord, and for our whole being. Lord, we pray that you would give to us, Lord, these desires. Lord, that you would cause them to burn within us more and more. Lord, like newborn babes that we would long for, that we would crave the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. And that, Lord, it would be more precious to us than anything else in this life. Lord, that you would incline our heart after your testimonies. Lord, that we would seek it more than we do money or possessions, more than we do, Lord, even our daily bread. Lord, more than anything in this world. Lord, that we would love you and that we would love your word and that we would want to know you, Lord, through your holy word. So, Lord, give to us these desires. Lord, make us walk in the pathway of your commandments. Lord, we pray that you would overcome, Lord, our own will. Lord, the will that is ruled by the the flesh. That, Lord, you would put it to death and that your will would rule and reign in our life. Lord, we are your slaves. You are our master. And Lord, we are unworthy slaves. Lord, it is our duty to obey you. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us. Teach us from your word. Lord, show us your will so that we can be faithful, wise slaves who, when you come, are found doing the will of their master. Lord, as well, we pray that you would give us the fear of God. Lord, that your word would produce reverence for you. Lord, that we would be thinking about and prepared for the day of judgment. Lord, by walking according to your commandments. So, Lord, we know that without you, Lord, we cannot do anything. Lord, we cannot so much as lift our little finger in service to you unless you give us the grace and the strength that we need. And so, Father, we come to you as the source, the fount, Lord, of all goodness, Lord, the God of all mercy, and we pray that, Lord, you would pour down your blessings upon your people and that, Lord, you would give to us what we need so that we might be faithful to you in all things. Lord, may you be glorified, Lord, in our lives, and may we serve you faithfully to the very end. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.